This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast, where we analyze and think about the ways in which history, mythology, and philosophy have influenced popular storytelling. As always, I am incredibly excited to be here today for another episode of The Midnight Myth, and for an unusual reason, because it's almost Valentine's Day. And in general, it's not a holiday I tend to celebrate or, or care about. think you know too much about or care about for, yeah, that's probably the better way to put it. Um, but in the spirit of the midnight myth, where we look at and we examine holidays in previous holiday times and how those holidays have influenced and shaped our storytelling, I thought, and I hope you agree with me, it would be prudent to discuss Valentine's Day and discuss storytelling through the lens of romance, through the lens of love. And truly, is there a better lens to look at storytelling ever? Right. Love conquers all, right? Uh, Hopefully. We shall see. We shall see. So in order for us to really figure out how are we going to celebrate Valentine's Day, we wanted to take a story that is both timeless and also contemporary, a story that we all know, and a story that resonates generationally. And we really came to one particular piece of both literature, film, art, and that was William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. There is really no escaping it when you talk about romantic love and storytelling. And in our last full episode on Jorah Mormont, we talked about how little we address that theme in our uh, podcast. So it'll be interesting to dig really deeply into the conventions of romantic love as they are presented in art and storytelling in a way we haven't before. And it's important to us because, as you know, if you've been listening for a while, Derek and I are married to each other. And a huge part of what this podcast presents for us personally is a place for us to explore what that means, what that means about our humanity with each other, what that means about what we can give to the rest of the world. So I'm really excited to explore what true love is through this timeless and classic tale. So a few, I think, preambles and disclaimers. We recently just saw Romeo and Juliet here in Philadelphia at the Wilma Theater and saw just a beautiful rendition of the play. Um, So that really jump-started us thinking about it. So I guess it goes without saying, we'll spoil Romeo and Juliet. But I don't think that's spoilable. If you went to high school, you read Romeo and Juliet. It's like spoiling the Bible. Exactly. Not quite as much (laughs) as spoiling the Bible, but it's almost there. Right. Uh, It's also worth saying that people have PhDs in Shakespeare. And I personally am not an expert on Shakespeare, though appreciative though someone that knows Shakespeare and has interacted both in going to see Shakespeare plays, movies based off of Shakespeare, and reading Shakespeare works. 
I don't want to pretend like I am the preeminent authority on the subject because I'm just flat out not. That being said, I think if we want to know why we have the type of romantic love that we see in popular storytelling today, you have to talk about Romeo and Juliet first. And for a few big, big reasons. One you didn't have stories of romantic love like Romeo and Juliet before Romeo and Juliet. Right. It's very much a genre that William Shakespeare penned for the first time. And I think it takes a moment to pause and reflect and just appreciate the brilliance of a writer creating a play that would then funnel our ideas of romantic love and what romantic love means in storytelling Henceforth, I think that is something that is truly amazing and the rare moments where a brilliant writer and brilliant storyteller does touch on something universal. And we're going to uncover why we think that happened and how we think that happened in today's episode, as well as we're going to talk and dive deep into the story. But before we do any of that, (laughs) Laurel, We've had a lot of people hitting us up on Twitter, which has been really amazing. Thank you. We've had people going through the website and dropping us contact submissions. So thank you. For those of you who are new to the podcast and want to dialogue with us, Laurel, how can they find us? Well, we would love to hear from you on Twitter, and that's going to be at The Midnight Myth, on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, And you can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, to leave us uh, a message on the contact form there. And then if you haven't yet, make sure you head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit subscribe and leave us a rating or a review. Great. All right. So I'd like to, as I want to do, and you are so fantastic in that you indulge me, I'd like to set some historical context to both William Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. Yes. So we are, the story of Romeo and Juliet takes place in medieval Verona. Uh, People debate what Shakespeare's intentions were for the time that it was set. Some say it's set in the 1300s. Some say it's set in the 1500s. But we can safely say it was originally designed to be Verona in what is now modern day Italy in what's called the late Middle Ages, the period right before we get to what we now call modernity. Right. So... It's important to understand it might strike us as contemporary readers to be to find it odd that there are powerful and wealthy families that are killing each other in the street. That's not how modern cities work, right? That's how modern gangs work. There's a reason when West Side Story, inspired by Romeo and Juliet, wanting to turn it into a musical, use gangs and not rich, noble families. Right. Because that's not something that happens. However, It is actually very historically accurate. Italy at the time of Shakespeare and at the time a few hundred years was not one nation as we know it today. Rather, it is separate, smaller kingdoms. Kingdoms that were often vying for territory, vying for supremacy. There were um, noble families that were also trying to vie for more wealth. There was a merchant class that was emerging that was also vying for power. And these smaller client kingdoms were often aligned with each other while at the same time at war with each other. And this is kind of all in the aftermath of the distant aftermath of the decline of the Roman Empire, right? We're still in that shadow. This is exactly after that. After the fall of the Roman Empire, which Italy was the main center of the entire world, the shift in Western Europe came to the territories that that are now modern day um, France and Germany. Those places were where the, the, the most of the wealth was, where most of the power was. And then we have this uh, young upstart nation, kidding, from a historical perspective, <laughs> Britain, who becomes yeah. a powerhouse. Right. England, medieval England, becomes a powerhouse and very important nation. Um, Italy is across a mountain range and not as important to the broader Western European geopolitical sphere. Because of that, no conqueror feels like conquering it. And yet it is still monumentally important because of Rome right? and what is in Rome, but the Vatican city and the seat of the Western Roman Catholic church. So who is in control of Italy is, is a huge question. 
And who's, who is helping to name the popes is a huge question. And we have these small client kingdoms. I say client kingdoms, but independent, small little nations fighting for each other, fighting with each other, pardon me, and against each other while being aligned with each other. It's very much like a modern day Game of Thrones scenario. Yeah, it sounds very Game of Thrones. And what we see with the Capulets and the Montagues is not so dissimilar to what we see with the Lannisters and the Starks. It is two noble families who are both the two most powerful in Verona vying for supremacy over Verona. And in that, they have these families at, at odds and at, and at war with each other causing violence and disruption in the streets. There are actual Italian families that did things similar to the fictional Montagues and the Capulets. And sometimes one would rise to supremacy. Think of the Medicis, who ended up right. you know, naming popes for half a century. So in this context, in this lens, we enter into medieval Verona, where we have two very powerful families vying for supremacy, and the fights are happening in the street between their, you know, their vassals and their knights that are killing each other on a daily basis. Very, very interesting historical context, which I appreciate too, because Shakespeare notably does not give us the origin of this feud, right? Between the Capulets and the Montagues. And one of the things that is so notable about Shakespeare's plays is that they are easily adapted to reflect the uh, the turmoil of the time to reflect the zeitgeist. And that's why you'll continue to see West Side stories. That's why you'll continue to see Romeo and Juliet or even Hamlet and A Midsummer Night's Dream updated to modern or anachronistic uh, adaptations. Uh, and so we're able to project sort of new conflicts on these characters, but he's building it out of something that is historically plausible, historically happened, and also giving us this great ambiguity and this great sense of how arbitrary that feud really is. Because they are kinsmen in the, the truest sense of the word. These two families that fight are people of the same land, are people who will eventually be united under one crown. But for now, they fight between them for seemingly no reason. And that sets in motion the events of the play that lead to tragedy. Sure. Another, I think, historical context to add in there is to talk a little bit about medieval marriage, if you'll permit me Sure. That. Because it's radically different from marriage as we know it today. So a medieval marriage is a marriage in between a man and a woman arranged by the fathers. The medieval structure of society is inherently patriarchal, starting with God the father, to the pope the other father, to the priests, um, in that you have the king, and then the king has the nobles, and then to the peasant who has the father. And in every phase and facet of the society, the father is the dominant figure who decides and makes decisions for everyone else, and it must be obeyed under the commands of God. So even if I'm a peasant, when I walk into my own home as the father, I own everything in it, and everyone must do what I say as commanded by God. Marriage is about two families, two fathers, deciding what best match would suit both of their interests. If you're a peasant, it might help you get a few more sheep. It might uh, be a, a family that you have an alignment with or dispute that you're trying to settle. For nobles, it's about the transfer of property. It's about inheritance and about the growth of power. If I have a fellow, um, if I'm a lesser noble, who's looking to, you know, get uh, a bigger, better foothold in with the king, and one of the king's cousins wants to marry one of my daughters, that gives me an in now so I can better the family. The easiest way to understand it is there are no actual individuals as we know it in modernity. The individual as a unit that produces good by being an individual doesn't exist. You are part of a family. You are not free. And you have to do what's in the best interest of the family. Love is certainly a concept that exists in the medieval times, but not within marriage. Marriage is not about love. It is about an arrangement between two families to better both families. A dowry is exchanged between the, the daughters, um, the father of the bride, right. 
uh, gives wealth, money, property, whatever they can give to the man that will eventually marry to set them up. In this lens, we have to understand how unique what Shakespeare is doing. So Shakespeare is writing at the end of two big major movements. One of those movements is called the Italian Renaissance. The other, the one that I think is a little more historically accurate is a movement called humanism. The Italian Renaissance and humanism are linked. Yes. What happened, people started rediscovering and rereading classic Greek and Roman literature, and they started rereading it, but also engaging it. It's a fallacy to think that, that reading that literature disappeared in Western Europe. It didn't. People were reading it, but it was just to improve their ancient Greek or to improve their ancient Latin. But they weren't allowed to engage in it. In fact, it would be sinful to read Cicero and enjoy it. In the Italian Renaissance, they started reading this material and enjoying it and engaging with the material and debating the ideas and reinvigorating ancient means of teaching which we now call humanism, where we now get the term the humanities. They're also simultaneously literally digging up the remains of classic uh, Greek statue as well. So art is developing alongside literature and people are re-engaging the principles of uh, love of the body. So alongside this humanistic literature, we're seeing humanistic art. Michelangelo is literally digging up these pieces and emulating them for his David or for his Sistine Chapel. So these are all developing side by side in art and culture. And at the outgrowth of this, another major historical event happened. The Black Death, somewhere between one third to 75%, no one really knows for sure, of Western Europe's population vanished in four years. What happens when that occurs? Social mobility, the ability for someone to start in one position and end in another because there's a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of of labor. There's huge amounts of land um, unowned that someone could then purchase. So we see all of these fluctuating things, a rebirth of... Um, classical literature, re-engaging with ideas, a more social mobility than had happened, and the idea that there is an individual and what the individual needs and what the individual wants is important. Yes. Within this context, enter in Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet flies in the face of the conventional medieval marriage where individuals don't matter What you want doesn't matter. You must do what's good for your family. And for the first time I know in Western history, a story is about two individuals and that the fact that they love each other. And it's their love that bonds them. In fact, there's no advantage for their families. There's no advantage to uh, the political situation. In fact, potentially could harm the political situation in Verona. I mean, fuck, Romeo gets banished. You know, in this story. So he doesn't benefit himself at all through his contact or his romance with Juliet the way a marriage should, for especially for nobles, should be benefiting them. And we have two individuals in love. We have the new modern romance. And it emerges for the first time. And we're still living in that ripple effect today. Absolutely. I I love that. I want to rewind to the hierarchy that you were describing when introducing this idea of the medieval marriage and how important that is to Shakespeare. I've written about this in the uh, Midnight Myth blog before, but in Elizabethan England, this gets to be known as the great chain of being. And this is a hierarchy that is microcosmic, that is macrocosmic, that echoes throughout Shakespeare's plays. You'll notice in his tragedies, typically his tragedies are men like Macbeth who try to ascend above their place in the great chain of being, but they throw the heavens out of order in doing so because of some uh, inner fault or tragic flaw. So Shakespeare is imposing this medieval sense of hierarchy, of being uh, slave to the father, and then showing us what happens when we dare to step out of line. But Shakespeare's always questioning it, right? He introduces it again in Hamlet through the uh, amazing speech where he proves that if if the great chain of being really is as it is, but men still die and they decompose in the grass, then by those means... 
a king will pass through the guts of a beggar. And he shows us again how arbitrary and fickle these, uh, these hierarchies really are. That's where he starts to chip away at the medieval sense and introduce us to the modern, setting the stage for what we have in Romeo and Juliet, which is an early play of his. So those plays that I just mentioned come after. He's starting to really develop this sense of what it means to fly in the face of the great chain of being. But this is written between 1591 and 1595. It's one of his first plays. The only other major play that he had written before this was Titus Andronicus, which is much more forgotten to time, is good for a laugh, and also inspires a scene in Game of Thrones, but does not in any way come close to the heights that he hits with language in Romeo and Juliet. The next great play that he will write is Julius Caesar, and from there he'll hit on a role and create Hamlet and Lear, and so on and so forth. But there is a sense that Shakespeare is responsible for much of the modern world. And it's hard to argue with that sense, whether that's introducing us to the idea of romantic love being the basis for marriage or introducing thousands of new words to the English vocabulary. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, literary critics of all time, Harold Bloom, has an entire book about how Shakespeare invented the human, how Shakespeare invented humanity. Uh, in a sense, Shakespeare invented us. And what he means by this is that he drew such a compelling and brilliant portrait of modern man that modern man stepped into the portrait. Therefore, we learned to love from Romeo and Juliet, and Romeo and Juliet learned to love from us. So that's where I kind of jump into understanding this play and the legacy that it's left the fact that we have West Side Story, that we have Greece, that we have 10 Things I Hate About You, because we are still stepping into the portrait that was made so beautifully of us. Yeah, you know, it's a one thing I'd like to point out, too, um, in, in conjunction with that, mm -hmm. is that the period of time in which Shakespeare is writing is a period of time where the people in that time were discussing have we ended the Middle Age and have we entered into the modern? Right. And historians date the end of the Middle Ages around somewhere between the 15th and 16th century. That that was when the Middle Ages end and modernity begins. Um, and there's a lot of benchmarks for it, but most importantly, the most important characteristic of Western modernity is the role and the focus of the individual yeah. and what the individual is capable of and that society's purpose is to unlock the individual's potential. Rather than just to serve God or... And exactly. Rather to serve in a chain that you can never break out of. Right. Um, yes. Whether it's to serve God or serve a king, the idea that anyone can be great. And what do we see in Shakespeare's so modern version of love. What do we see in his first experiments of the individual and the importance of the individual? We see the individuals in a pure love get fucking destroyed yep. by the world. Yeah. They get absolutely brutally destroyed. Romeo tries to not fight Tybalt, but can't help it but have to kill Tybalt. Yeah, fire-eyed fury takes over. Juliet, in her attempts to avoid a sin and marrying a second man, fakes her own death, which triggers Romeo's own death. They are absolutely buried under the weight of the medieval system, saying, no, you're not individuals. You're not allowed to be in love. You're not allowed to focus on your own desires. You have to do what's good for your family. And for Romeo, that means you've got to kill Capulets. And for Juliet, that means shut up and marry who you're told. And because that they are denied the ability to pursue their individual love, what is good for them, they are punished in this world by death. And that is a stark, stark and dark Reminder that Shakespeare's saying that the world was not quite ready. The world's not ready for yeah. this true love to actually flourish. Maybe the Montagues and Capulets shake hands at the end, and maybe they stop being greedy, noble fucks. But the one thing they can't ever undo is the fact they killed their children in the pursuit of their feud. Yeah, uh, so I I love that as a, a kind of a 
reminder here as we begin to unpack the play because as we talk about it as this great romance, it is so easy to miss that it is a play about violence. Uh, it is absolutely a play about love, but probably more it's a play about violence and how love and violence interact and whether we can reconcile them in a modern world, whether one can truly triumph over the other when the other is so strong and so forceful. Uh, one of the great lines uh, of the play. Hold on, can I, can I just ask a follow-up question? Yeah. When violence is so great, is so forceful, is that what you mean there? Yeah, when okay. violence is so forceful, can love ever triumph? Okay, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Yeah, Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, one of the great lines of the play is these violent delights have violent ends. And that, of course, has come back into the, the popular uh, consciousness with Westworld, which repeats it over and over again. But that's a story about uh, people breaking out of their programming. You know, that's an interesting thing that you brought up there, in particular, the breaking out of the programming. Yeah. That theme that you see in Westworld that starts in Romeo and Juliet. Because should the medieval world die and give birth to the modern, there's a type of reprogramming that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And a type of major tectonic shifts in societal thinking that needed to happen. And Romeo and Juliet is the sounding board it's the um, it's the the space in which we can see what happens when we deny love in life and we choose violence over love. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I think that is still a theme worth examining in our own time, where we have a world that still is has violence ripping it apart. We call ourselves modern, but sometimes we act still very savage and barbaric. And what role? does love have in modernity? What's the next phase? And what's the voice that will usher us there? What's the Shakespeare of our time? Lin-Manuel Miranda. But, uh, but you did just say they choose violence. And I want to zero in on that as we kind of break in, uh, that there is a semblance of choice here, or there is an affirmation of choice within the world of Romeo and Juliet. Because... As we know, the play begins with a, uh, a chorus speaking this famous opening soliloquy, these really powerful lines about a pair of star-crossed lovers who take their life. Uh, two households, both alike in dignity, so on and so forth. You've probably heard it before. Um, but those words star-crossed are some of the most commonly referenced words when we talk about the lovers within this play. And they link us very clearly to... Uh, these ancient forms of divination and fate. Essentially, the chorus is signaling to us that the tragedy that unfolds uh, in this play is due to accident, is because you know the stars were aligned in such a way that would always, always end with these two characters falling in love even though they can't be together and killing themselves. Uh, there's another great Herald literary critic named Harold Goddard who has a book called The Meaning of Shakespeare, which I've used to sort of craft a lot of my uh, sort of literary opinions about this play. And he has another opinion. He says that the chorus is telling us through the use of the terminology of star-crossed that we can just surrender this whole play to the astrologers. It's a classic Greek tragedy, if you will, where there's nothing the heroes can do to escape the fate that the gods have put out for them, and anything they do to try to escape will only take them there faster. But Goddard believes that that's misinterpreting the action of the play, that the chorus speaks one voice, but doesn't speak necessarily for the poet, doesn't necessarily speak for Shakespeare. In Goddard's opinion, this is a play where not fate, but fear strikes down the lovers. Fear creates uh, what happens in Verona. And it is choice and action and responsibility on the part of many people, quite specifically in his opinion, Mercutio, that leads to the great tragedy at the end of this play. Um, and I, I think it's worth spending some time exploring that element of choice as it's presented here in Romeo and Juliet because it is something that Shakespeare will go on to develop quite um, 
poignantly in his later tragedies, this question of whether the heroes have choice. And when he is first giving us what will become, you know, this great line of Shakespearean tragedies, I think he is giving us the first existential ones. Um, we've talked about Game of Thrones as existential tragedy before, but as you look closer at what Shakespeare was creating in the 16th century, he was giving us tragedies of choice. He was giving us tragedies of responsibility where people made choices that led to their downfall. Um, and it wasn't just you know, a fatal flaw. It wasn't just hubris or pride that was striking them down. It was people making the wrong choices when they had the opportunity to go another way. I completely agree. I, I think it's instructive when we are examining the sort of philosophical world that Shakespeare is in, in particular when it comes to morality and concepts such as right action and sin, to uh, understand that Medieval philosophy and medieval theology are, for the most part, the same thing. There wouldn't be a distinction as there is today between philosophy and theology. The reason for that is that the Catholic Church held, disseminated, and taught almost all education, and nobody doubted the supremacy of God and God's presence in Western Europe. Because of that, there arose certain philosophical problems, such as the problem of evil, which we've discussed in previous podcasts. In the early medieval ages, people like St. Augustine addressed this problem. Yeah. And even though it was still debated henceforth, it was largely settled that human beings were free. God is good and all-knowing, but gave freedom. So human can humans can choose to be in accordance to God's law and be good, or to be absent from God's law and be evil. It is not the devil that creates bad things and evil things and sinful things. It is hum humans and their choice to turn away from God. You flash forward a couple centuries, and then we see humanism emerging as the dominant philosophy and also the dominant education system that emphasizes the individual and the individual's potential. You can only have an individual and an individual's potential philosophically if the individual is free to choose on their own. So we have a world in which free will is the dominant moral thinking upon how we determine and cipher out what's right action, what's wrong action. Yeah. Or And even if you're turning away from religion at this point because you're starting to view it as superstition and you're more of a humanist and you're looking more into the natural world, you still have free will as the central thesis behind what it means and why... Uh, our actions matter or don't matter. In that, we enter into Romeo and Juliet, and you bring up a good thing with Mercutio. His character, which is, by the way, one of the best characters. One of Shakespeare's greatest characters, and his first great character, really. And just truly brilliant, and you have his his Capulet counterpoint in um, uh, Tybalt. Tybalt. So you have these two lesser-in-the-houses, flamboyant, charming knights, who meet each other on the street right after Romeo gets secretly married to Juliet, and Tybalt challenges Romeo to a duel to avenge the honor of the Capulets, and Romeo refuses. It is Mercutio who cannot suffer Tybalt's arrogance and Tybalt's flagrant disrespect to the Montagues, who takes Romeo's place in the duel and loses and dies. And that is the, the, the moment by which we are catapulted to the tragedy. Yeah, it's the crisis of the play. When Mercutio dies, Romeo now has to avenge his friend, lest he become dishonorable, yeah. and murder his own cousin by marriage. And that is where we see, as you say, the choice of violence taking over the choice of love. And these things can only be important when analyzing the play if we understand them not as divine intervention, but human choices and the failure to choose love over violence. Absolutely. So uh, I totally am in agreement. It, yeah. It, it is easy to write off the play as a play of accidents, right? Because it is a play of bad timing uh, from the beginning. You know, Juliet is, thinks she's too young to get married, but... Uh, her father really wants her to marry this Paris guy, so they decide to move up the marriage. Uh, she meets Romeo at a time that's wholly inconvenient because she's just been promised to Paris. 
they get secretly married, and then right after that, Tybalt challenges challenges Romeo to a duel, and then horrible mistiming of the false poison in the uh, the vault of the Capulets. So it is a play of people missing each other and notes not being conveyed due to freak coincidences, right? It's easy to write that off as accident or star-crossed. But if we interrogate the text further, Shakespeare is telling us at every level, someone made the violent choice. Someone made the fearful choice rather than the choice of love. I sound a little bit like Patrick Swayze's character in Donnie Darko here, where there is a spectrum between fear and love, but within the context... Violence is a product of fear. <laughs> within Sorry. the context of this play, it, it really does work, right? The, the Montagues and the Capulets are fighting with each other out of fear, out of fear of losing their you know, honorable status, out of fear of being portrayed as intimidating uh, or powerful, uh, and all of Romeo's actions within the duel are out of fear of being called dishonorable for not holding up the honor of his dead friend. Um, so we're absolutely dealing in this world of people making choices that are easy, people making choices that seem like what their fear is telling them to do, rather than making the divine and incredibly difficult choice of standing with love, which Romeo almost does, but doesn't. It's not easy when the pressures of the world are telling you to be a violent warrior and all you want to do is, you know, climb balconies and speak sonnets to your true love. Which is, yeah. It is, it's tough to be a romantic man in an age of violent men. And Romeo suffers under that. The world happens, right? Things happen around you and they happen to you. And these are things that are out of your control, to call them by definition divine in the context of Romeo and Juliet misses the point that it is a play about yeah. humanity humanity, and it is a play about medieval humanism. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's everywhere that we see, we see the consequence of choices, both some well-intended, such as the friar wanting to help Juliet fake her death, which is... Fucking crazy. Fucking crazy. You've got a major problem. I married you in secret. Your husband's been banished. By the way, your family wants to kill your husband. Uh, so I'm going to help you fake your death. How about some hijinks for good measure? Like, holy shit, that's insane. Even in the context of the 1500s. Right. That's fucking insane. Faking your own death is not a good solution to any problem ever. <laughs> but the friar is trying in good faith. He wants to assist and help them. Yeah. And he wants to help this town. So he, he has well intention, well intended, but my God, that's a fucking crazy plan. Yeah. Uh, and I think it all serves to point as well to this sort of refutation of the classic Greek tragedy um, that the chorus seems to be hinting that we are watching, but we are not watching. The chorus itself is a Greek, uh, you know, convention, and and so signals that to us. But all of the action leans a different way. Um, I, just real quick, I think it's important that yeah. we should define as we compare Romeo and Juliet yeah. as not a Greek tragedy in that sense, to uh, make a good definition, if you would. Do you mind? Yeah, so a, a Greek tragedy by Sophocles or Euripides or his like would feature uh, a great hero who is essentially a plaything of the gods. And correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong in any way, but we will have a character who has an inherent tragic flaw uh, typically hubris, which is a desire and uh, belief that you know, his own pride will help him be more powerful than the gods um, or that he can fly in the face of what the gods have ordained for him. And it's usually us watching a character in a high position like King um, fall from that great height. Uh, and these are things that we will see Shakespeare portray, but with very different sensibilities. And we see portrayed in this play with very different sensibilities. But I think one of the biggest differences between a Greek tragedy and this play is that our heroes don't have tragic flaws. They are well-drawn characters, to be sure. They are flawed, most certainly, especially Romeo, who is a character whose 
emotions are extremely wild and he uh, can fly between these great poles of, of feeling divine faith and love in Juliet and feeling fire-eyed fury that causes him to kill someone. Um, he is a character who is easily won over by beautiful women. Um, but he doesn't have a tragic flaw, right? All of the tragedies that befall him are not due to some preordained problem with him psychologically. It's all part and parcel of the action. It's part and parcel of the drama. And Juliet most certainly does not have a tragic flaw. I, it would be hard to find a flaw with Juliet because she in this play represents the spirit of love incarnate, right? There is no more beautiful poetry uttered from anyone's lips about love than my bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep, the more I give to thee, the more I have for both are infinite. We believe that, right? We believe that her bounty is boundless. Romeo's bounty is just a little bit bound by the violence that Verona has thrust upon him. But I wanna point to another line that Romeo has during this crisis moment, uh, right after he has slain Tybalt. He says, O oh, sweet Juliet, thy beauty hath made me effeminate, and in my temper softened valor's steel. He cries this out as though it is a flaw, as though this is a fault, that he has shown himself to be weak, that he has shown himself to be womanly and almost too afraid to avenge the death of his friend. But what greater miracle is there in the world than the beauty of a woman that you love, softening steel. Love is fire and is transformative. This passion that they have for one another can murder violence, except that Romeo doesn't quite get there. And that's the real pain that, that I feel when we watch this play, is that he gets so fucking close because this is a play about symbolically the spirit of love looking down at Verona and saying, God damn, there's a lot of violence there. But I see these two people and I think they might be worthy vessels for me to work my magic and put an end to this once and for all. And the spirit of love chose well when it chose Juliet because she is, you know, she's unimpeachable and chose really well when it chose Romeo because he's really strong in the face of a hostile world, but it still wasn't strong enough. The spirit of transformative love is still not strong enough in the face of that much hate, which is sad. Interesting things that you frame there about love murdering violence conjured up some violent imagery of love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed like you were, that was kind of a, it, it was an interesting paradox in a word choice there. You yeah. were on a roll. Um, though you talk about the spirit of love, and I'm, I'm assuming you're meaning this poetically because you just laid out that it's not about spirits or, you know, transcendental forces exerting, no. you know, things to manipulate human events. That's what makes it not a Greek tragedy, right? Exactly. This is sort of a symbolic interpretation. And the prince has a line later in the play that sort of frames that as the, the explanation where he says, see what a scourge is laid upon your hate that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love. So it, it, the explanation that even the law and order person has is heaven is so dismayed with your hate that it tried to kill it with love. Interesting. Yeah. I interesting. I, I feel like I'm in a, a, while I'm enjoying your interpretation, I feel like you've presented a bit of a paradox for me. I, I am talking symbolically, though. I'm not saying that literally heaven smiled down on these two characters, but that's what we're watching symbolically, is the two best hopes for love in a hostile world were still crushed, I think is what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So what I wonder watching and reading this text from a modern perspective is, can we, you know, how do we move forward? If, if this is a play, if this is the play from which 
we gather our like modern conceptions of what love really means and it's crushed even in its most transformative uh, context you know how do we continue to love why do we continue to love even though we've been shown time and time again that it doesn't always work is love still a courageous act if hate is stronger is hate stronger you know i think from a contemporary storytelling perspective one of the reasons i find the romance genre tired and uh, that i don't genuinely enjoy its film literature etc is that most take the star crossed lover motif put you know a charming charismatic man and a beautiful woman and make sure that no matter what it all works out right it just becomes will they or won't they and that's the standard formula boy meets girl girl meets boy they like each other they can't be together they have to overcome this obstacle now they've overcome this obstacle they can be together for forever and it was destiny and very much romeo and juliet without the question that you just asked and in reality i think the way we move on utilizing romance as a narrative is to pick your question up and play with it and to continue to work with it to say can true love exist in a dark and bleak and violent world and can it should it exist in the world that we're creating rather than repackaging all of the sweet moments of Romeo and Juliet and then selling it over and over and over and over. Right. And I think that would be my meta critique on how we have taken the wrong lessons from Romeo and Juliet and commercialized them into a very successful genre of both literature and uh, film and TV that will they, won't they star crossed lovers. And I think to do honor to Shakespeare, to try to answer that question, we need to push the boundaries of that genre and really try to say, what purpose does love have? Can love actually transform the world? I can think of another group of British fantastic geniuses who asked that question in a completely different art form. Yeah. I And I'm thinking of the Beatles. Wow. Who, oh, yeah. Who pick up that question of Romeo and Juliet, but they put it in song. Can love actually push the world further? Is love all you need? And, and shouldn't it be all you need? And can't we transform the world through art and beauty and love? I fucking love that. And so I think that, yes, we can live in a world where love is more important than violence and hate. But I also think we can't put it in too simple of terms. We can't define it simply like the Donnie Darko fear and love spheres. Of course. It's so much more complex. So Romeo and Juliet get crushed under the violence of two feuding families, but powerful people feuding for, for more power isn't going anywhere and didn't end in the Middle Ages. So what are the conditions by which that, that scenario can happen where the powerful are constantly feuding each other um, for just a little more slice of a pie they already own three quarters of. you know. So that is still a thing that's going to crush individuals and crush our potential underneath the weight of it, and still does to this day. So I think I, I don't have an answer to your question, but I would like to see more romantic art in the vein of Romeo and Juliet's true spirit, which is... What is the role of love? Can love succeed more in the spirit of both Paul McCartney and John Lennon and their beautiful songs about love than we have currently? So I don't think there's a lot of artists seriously tackling that question. And if there are out there listeners and you know of them. Oh, let us know. Please tell me who they yeah. are. Yeah. You know? Because Romeo and Juliet is not about the balcony scene, right? That is a great and iconic scene, but Romeo and Juliet is about the duel. Romeo and Juliet is about that central crisis. And the most miraculous expression of love that I see within that play, every time that I watch it performed on stage, every time that I read that text, is Romeo saying to his former enemy, I have reasons to love you. Uh, that is Christ-like. Right? He is loving his enemy. That is him being transformed by the power of what he experienced on the balcony. Uh, and that's the kind of love that is underrepresented, right? Love that 
uh, even between you know, two people who romantically are passionate for one another, that love is enough to end the war between Capulets and Montagues, at least for Romeo. His love for Juliet extends to all Capulets because once he loves her, he loves them all. It is a kind of love that makes us all one family, that makes us all one Italy, almost. Um, so that's kind of what I what I want to see more in the vein of what you are calling for here. I, I think that the truth yeah. is the world still does not allow us to love our enemies. We are yeah. still more rewarded, more pressured to kill them. Yeah. Um, and we're st- it, even the great strides forward that we've had as a species since that time, the, you know, the uh, like less war that we have compared to, you know, medieval times. Um, but then again, you know, the wars that we do have, though we have less of them, kill a lot more people more efficiently. So I, I don't know what's better. I want to wrap up with another quote by this literary critic, Harold Goddard, that I think uh, answers that question that I put out about does love conquer all to a degree um, and maybe leaves us with more questions. But the quote goes, those who think that Jesus and Juliet and Romeo were fools will have plenty of backing. The fathers will be on their side. They will have the authority of the ages and the crowd. Only a philosopher or two, a few lovers, saints, and poets will be against them. End quote. I think what's really being said here is that we still live in a version of that hostile world of Verona. We still live in a world where no matter what we say, love will always take a back seat to the violence that our world is accustomed to. And yet when we look back at the truly great acts of humankind's tenure on this earth, we're going to look at the Mother Teresa's and we're going to say we were okay. We're going to look at people who passionately and genuinely loved each other and loved all mankind and say, at least we had them. At least we had this spark of true humanity within us. And we can thank Shakespeare for putting that into poetry. Yeah, agreed. You know, can love conquer all? Not in medieval Verona. And who knows going forward. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.